Welcome to the LSU NCVRT Preparedness Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Markle. I'm a Curriculum Development Specialist here at NCVRT, and I work in collaboration with subject matter experts to create valuable and timely training for the responder community. In the light of recent events, we would like to reiterate that LSU NCBRT is committed to social justice and equality and ending racism and discrimination. We will strive to achieve these objectives in our own work by providing improved training and education. We will also engage with law enforcement and other first responders to improve the relationships they form with the communities they serve. Today on the podcast, we're talking to Kristen Zeman and Steve Castevens about what public safety looks like as we head into the last quarter of 2020 and into 2021, given the recent events that put police at the forefront of national conversation. Next week, we'll continue our conversation with Kristen and Steve about responder mental health. Co-hosting the podcast with me today is Roy Bethke, who is a past guest of the podcast. He is an LSU NCBRT subject matter expert and is a retired deputy police chief in Buffalo Grove, Illinois. Steve Castevens is currently the police chief in Buffalo Grove, Illinois. He is a past president of the Illinois Association of Chiefs of Police, and he currently serves as the president of the International Association of Chiefs of Police. Kristen Zeman is the chief of police of the Aurora, Illinois Police Department, and is the vice president at large of the International Association of Chiefs of Police. Thank you to Kristen and Steve for coming on the podcast and sharing with us today. We want to start off with just going around and telling us a little bit about what responder resilience means to you. Well, I'm happy to start off. Um, I had this conversation recently with somebody, and I, in its most simplest explanation, I believe, and I, even though we all love the fire department and law enforcement, uh, we tend to compare ourselves a lot. And when I think about resilience with first responders, I think of the fire service responding to a call, and when they're done with a the call, they grab up their equipment, they go back to the firehouse, they sit around the dining room table and they discuss it. And they discuss how they handled the call, what they learned from the call, and they have time to decompress and evaluate. Conversely, a police officer goes to a fatal crash scene, uh, has to attend to everything at that crash scene, sees some horrific uh, uh, injured people, somebody who may have died at the crash scene. And from there, they go to a dog bite call or they go to a neighborhood dispute. They don't have time in between calls for service to decompress, to evaluate, to talk it over with their other responders. That's just the nature of the beast in law enforcement. And so for law enforcement, the resilience is being able to bounce back and not carry over the, the grief of what you may have seen in a previous call for service onto the next one and the next one. When I think of resilience, I often think about, you know, all of the times I've responded to perhaps a 911 call over the years. And it's been very interesting in human psychology to see how perhaps one incident um, and a person reacts, and then you have the very same incident and a person reacts very differently. It's no different in policing when we look at um, our resilience of our police officers. It's not something that, that we test for, even in the process and the background check. 
it's very difficult to measure resilience and what that means. And then over the years, what we've seen is that we train tactically, we train defensive tactics, we train, you know, the laws and search and seizure and constitution, but we never train on how to deal with those matters, especially as, as Steve just mentioned, you know, what happens after that call and after you've seen uh, the worst of humanity and how do you put and process those emotions that you're having. And having said that, emotions have not been allowed. So uh, over the years, we've basically told our officers, suck it up, you know, you you joined this profession and that means that you have to deal with everything that that you see. And, and we haven't taught resilience, we haven't taught coping mechanisms. And so we rely so much on tactical training and we're great at that, but as, as far as resilience, and looking at the holistic officer, they're not robots, they're human beings. And so I think that the switch in the culture of policing is that we have to start looking at ways to teach officers coping skills and to talk through it. Because what we have seen is that officers then will disengage and perhaps um, um, these manifest these these things that they see these thousand tiny cuts that they see throughout their profession start to manifest them themselves and in, in manifest in their personal lives and you know then we see suicide and so on so uh, resilience is about the whole officer and i would add to that just from an emotional standpoint you know to your point Kristen, that uh, we need to normalize the challenges that first responders are going to encounter during their career and i think that starts even at the recruiting process both law enforcement and fire service and other responders, that these are really, really difficult careers that people are getting into that we're trying to get them into. It's not necessarily the glamorous stuff that you see on TV, if we still see that on TV. Um, it really is challenging to keep a, an officer or first responder healthy throughout their careers. And the emerging science of the study of post-traumatic growth, I think, provides some opportunities when we look at things like uh, Viktor Frankl, for those who haven't, who haven't read the book or aren't familiar with it, A Man's Search for Meaning, like we all go through these challenges and we handle them differently. But the reality is if we have some process in place, there are opportunities to become more resilient, to become better people, to grow because of the challenges we face. So if we can normalize that and have systems in place to capitalize uh, on those opportunities for growth, I think we could greatly improve officer resilience and responder resilience across the board. So in the light of COVID-19 and the events surrounding the death of George Floyd, recently. Um, what are some of the biggest issues concerning public safety as we go into the last quarter of 2020 and into 2021? Sounds like a simple question, but it's a huge answer because there are so many things for law enforcement to consider as we're moving forward. Um, every police chief in the last several weeks has gone back and reevaluated re their field training, They've reevaluated their policies and procedures. They've reevaluated whether they have a good early warning system for their officers. They've evaluated uh, the process of officers' annual evaluations, performance evaluations, their FDO program. There's so many things that we've looked at um, from a, a police leadership point of view. But we also have to take a new look at Something we've been talking about for the last decade is how well are we connecting with our community? We've talked about this long before even the 21st century policing report came out. And one of the tenets was that agencies need to reconnect with their community. And there are thousands of agencies that have done and continue to do an outstanding job with that. 
and uh, it's it's a philosophy of how your agency operates. It's not a special unit. Community policing unit is great, but it has to be a philosophy through your entire agency. And those connections have to be made throughout your community before bad things happen. And uh, over 40 years, I've looked at different law enforcement agencies when bad things happen, and you really can kind of tell which ones have connected with their community before, like Chief Zeman has in Aurora, and which ones have not. And uh, so I think every police need, leader needs to reevaluate how are they connecting with their community? What is the depth and breadth of their community policing right now? Because uh, that's critical to your agency. Absolutely. You mentioned, you know, two major incidents that have happened in, in our profession. And it, you know, we started off uh, this year going into a pandemic, which is something that we have never experienced. And so we have asked our officers to step up and work, you know, during a time when, you know, we're putting them on the front lines. And um, and I have to say, and I'm speaking not only on behalf of my department, but on departments across the nation who stepped up and went out there and still policed our community. It brought up questions, though, that we didn't know the answers to. How do you police in a pandemic? Are we truly, are we the authority on a stay-at-home order? What are we supposed to do when someone is not social distancing? And so we had to work through this crisis. And then Bam, right in the middle of this crisis, we have now, um, you know, an incident that happens in Minneapolis that now sends the nation into uh, into emotion and riots. And so we're still in the middle of that crisis. And yet, you know, I decided to cancel COVID uh, so then we could concentrate on this. And, you know, I'm speaking in jest, but that's almost what it felt like is like a light switch. And so now we have uh, a light shining on what our policies are, where, where are we falling short? And I think that any good police agency should have been looking at that before these crises uh, occurred. Um, and when I look at my police department and I think about all of the policies that we have put in place and all of the, um, of what we've put into the emotional bank account in our community, building relationships and building trust, uh, I'm, speaking on behalf of my agency and many others that are progressive is that we've tried to put these measures in place before we were forced to do so. And what I'm seeing is that a lot, a lot of agencies are now being forced to, to have more transparent use of force policies, to have more transparency in their, um, in their disciplinary process. Um, I'm proud to say we had those things in place. However, that, is, that sounds very defensive to say that is, oh, we already have these things, and that means nothing bad can happen. Um, I am not blind to the fact that a police officer can make a mistake. Um, is Do I believe that there are, are uh, police officers out there who should not wear the badge? Absolutely, we all do. And that is precisely why we have to have these policies in place because, you know, I can't tell, you know, what someone is thinking. And I've had these conversations with many of our community members is, you know, they ask me, do you think you have um, bigoted police officers? And I will say, I believe that there, there is an absolute minority in, in that. However, I'm not going to deny that there is implicit bias, but, and so how do you, how do you find that? How do you deal with that? How do you uh, recruit people who do not have that? I don't know the answer to that. So what I have to answer is policy and action. And I have to make sure that we have our disciplinary process in place and that we hold our officers accountable and we do it in a swift and transparent way that builds trust and legitimacy. Uh, but right now we're still in the emotion. And one thing I have learned 
in the middle of this of this crisis is that it doesn't matter how much I tout what we have done. Uh, facts don't seem to matter in this, you know, and I was, I was in the middle of a protest and I was saying, we hardly have any use of force complaints against um, our citizens. In fact, any that most of them are generated by our supervisors, which tells me that we police ourselves. And that does not, that does not resonate with people right now because people are in pain and because they have experienced most likely um, bias um, or or, I mean, harassment, you name it, um, you know, pain on, on behalf of a police officer or in an interaction. And we have to listen and to be sensitive to those stories. And so right now, I think we're better, instead of me touting, here's all the great things we've done. It doesn't matter. Now we need to listen to the stories and the pain uh, that people have incurred at the hands of policing, whether verbally or physically. And, and we have to take that and absorb that. And we have to try to be better, period. I recently put together about a 30-page report for our community to post on our police department website, something I never in my career thought I would have to do um, because we're very transparent, but I have gotten emails in the past two weeks from various citizens and business owners. Um, does your department allow chokeholds? Uh, what does your department's policy say on this? What's your policy and rules and regulations on this? So you know what, it, it's just time to answer all these questions uh, for the public. And I, I, Chris and I think you may have done something similar, but I put a, a report together uh, and I outlined everything that our department does relative to all of these questions that are coming up now. Here's our use of force policy and here's what it says. Uh, here's our policy on chokeholds. Um, here's our policy on officer training. Uh, I discussed the last two years of training, everything from use of force to de-escalation to implicit bias, to all of these topics and questions that are coming up. And uh, put this all in one report, sent it to my village manager. I said, we need to put this out uh, on our website front page so anybody in our community can look at that. And in a very short period of time, I've got some incredibly positive emails saying, wow, we looked through every page of this, and this is great. And I guess I, I took some of this for granted. Like, well, of course we don't allow chokehold. Of course we would not allow one of our officers to kneel on someone's neck. And, but I guess I take these things for granted because I've been doing it for 40 years. But I had to look at it from the eyes of the general public who, unless they've gone through our Citizen Police Academy, they have no idea what our policies are, and they really want to know. So uh, you hit it on the head, uh, Kristen. It's a new level of transparency, I think, that's important. Yeah, so if I could add, I think the, the two biggest issues as I see them, uh, the first is oversimplification. Um, law enforcement isn't the military. There isn't one person in charge of law enforcement in the United States that's responsible for doctrine, policy, training, recruiting. Uh, this is a very dynamic conversation, and if we consider Sir Robert Peel's seventh principle of law enforcement, the police are the community, and the community are the police. Aurora, Illinois, is not Buffalo Grove, Illinois. Buffalo Grove, Illinois, isn't New York City, uh, not San Diego, and, and not rural Arkansas someplace. So I think we need some flexibility to understand that if we're going to be effective in our communities, we have to have some flexibility to be able to connect with the community and adjust. The other big threat that I see, which hasn't isn't new, but it's been around for a long time, is, is this oversimplification that training is education. 
Um, there are no national standards for training, and there are a lot of reasons for that. We can get into some really deep, long conversations, maybe for another podcast. Um, but the reality is, you know, we need to do a better job training based on research and data and not what's popular. Uh, and there's an old adage in, in law enforcement, especially on the tactical side, if you want to sell training and, and, and make it uh, fun for people, paint it black, call it tactical, and people will, will just show up and uh, spend money on it. And that's a really unhealthy attitude for us to have. Much of the training uh, that we see is that most popular stuff. Uh, how do we evaluate that training is in fact effective and is creating the change that we need it to create? Uh, and we can go on and talk about recruiting and other challenges, but we'll save that for a different time. Well, I, I'll just add one quick comment here, and I don't want to get us off on a tangent, but it's important that you mentioned, Roy, uh, training. When I had conversations at the White House last week, and the topic of police training came up. And one of the things that I mentioned was that it still confounds me at 40 decades into this job that we have 15 or 50, five zero sets of training standards for law enforcement in this country because every state has their police academy standards and training board or whatever they call it that sets the minimum training standards. And there are 50 different ones. And so Illinois may have a 16-week academy, and California may have a six-month academy. And we, I think that's where we need to take a new look at basic academy training. We need to come up with some minimum standards that covers law enforcement across the country. And one more thing I wanted to add to that, you hit on something, and it goes back to teaching our officers resilience and teaching our officers more than just tactical training. You know, you 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 make a joke about you know call it tact paint it black and 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 call it tactical, right? So when we talk about Viktor Frankl and 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 his uh, idea of um, the greatest human freedom is is our response in any situation. So that that moment between stimulus and response, it is that moment in the middle where we pause, right? And that is what could potentially uh, affect an outcome. And that is uh, what I liken to a police officer out there on the street, um, that moment of stimulus and response. And sometimes that's where use of force or excessive force comes in because they are not able to pause. And so we looked at training in a holistic way um, and teaching officers meditation. Uh, and that meditation allows us to pause in that moment. But I will tell you, it was not well received in law enforcement because you put the word meditation and that sounds, you know, very granola. So, you know, what we did, we switched it to tactical breathing. And suddenly it's the same thing is that moment between stimulus and response. You take a moment, call it meditation, but call it tactical breathing. And it's that moment where you calm yourself, you find your center, and then you deal with the situation. And so that's what most of our, or that's what our training also needs to evolve into is, is again, not just tactical, not just response here, how I respond, but there is a moment where you may pause. And that is that moment between stimulus and response, call it whatever you want, but that's what we need to deal with as well. With so much going on, I'm sure it really takes a toll on police officers, um, the amount of stress that they're feeling right now. So do you think that in the future there could be um, an exodus of police officers because of the events of this year so far? Well, sadly, there already is. Um, I have seen police officers uh, posting on Facebook uh, videos where they said, I've had enough. Um, I'm quitting. I'm retiring. 
at 10, 12, 15 years. Uh, we saw in the last 24 hours, um, countless police officers from Atlanta who came in during their shift, turned in their squad car keys and left. Um, I, I don't think that you're going to see a mass exodus, but what I think you're going to see is, is two things in my opinion. Um, number one, you were going to see some officers who said, I've, I've put up with this for a long time. I've got a lot of stress. I've got a lot of anxiety. I'm done. And you're going to see other officers who say, I actually see this as an opportunity, an opportunity for me moving forward with my profession to be part of the next level of change. And that's what I keep telling people. This is an opportunity. And you need to be part of this opportunity because you can help shape this profession as we move forward to what the next iteration of law enforcement is going to look like. As of this morning, I have five uh, letters of resignation sitting on my desk. Um, and so, yes, to answer your question, I, I do believe there's going to be an exodus. Um, I agree uh, with Steve as well that there are going to be some who, you know, take this as a as an opportunity for growth and change. Uh, but I will say, just visiting my roll calls yesterday and trying to have some face to face time with the officers, one thing that occurred just, you know, after this event in the riots, we had a police officer who was behind a car. And they witnessed inside the car uh, the two occupants of the vehicle, both the driver and the passenger, that were hitting one another. And the officer pulled them over, and uh, they were, uh, it was a white officer and two African American occupants. And it turned into a terrible situation in that both were arrested uh, for obstructing, refusing to comply. Now, we had this conversation in our roll call in that what is the alternative? And, and one of the officers said, you know what? It's easier just to not do anything. I could have turned left instead of following them to, to check. And of course he went up to the car and the female was crying and breathing heavily. And, and, and we even had independent witnesses that saw the, the battery occur within the car. But he said, you know what? It would have been just easier to keep driving. And you know, we ha we're having these hard conversations about you know, the job of law enforcement by its very title, is that we have to enforce the law. And that means not turning the corner when we see something like that happening. I mean, our our mission is the preservation of life and, you know, and then property. Um, and so when we have these conversations, yeah, I'll tell you what, it would have been easier because that traffic stop went viral. The officers did nothing wrong. They acted uh, uh, professionally and with the confines of, of our policy and law and the constitution. Um, there still was, uh, a force that had to be used. But once we released that video, the public was very much on board and saw what the officers go through in that moment. But but these are these moments of truth and choice right now, these man versus moment of what am I going to do in that moment when I see something? Um, am I going to turn away or am I going to pursue that and enforce the law? And those are the hard conversations that we are having right now and in, in, in hoping that we can move forward. But what I told them is that what you were doing two weeks ago. Everyone loved us two weeks ago. You know, it was our, our again, the emotional bank account. We, we put so much into our community to gain trust. And I said, so you have not changed 
what, what you're doing. Two weeks ago, everyone loved you. And then something happened across the nation. Um, and now you're being painted with a broad brush. But that does not mean that you don't continue to do the work that you are sworn to do. And again, sometimes it's not popular to enforce the law, but it has to be done. And there have to be people that step up to do that. And they have to continue to be guardians of the community, period. Yeah, for sure. I think there's going to be an exodus, and I think we're we're seeing it. We I think we were going to see it after the COVID, uh, you know, issues, and and you know every area was hit a little bit differently. And then you have George Floyd, and now you have uh, Atlanta. And historically, we we've been through some pretty significant challenges uh, as a profession. Back to Rodney King, back to the Watts riots. You know, this is different for a lot of reasons. Uh, it's compounded. Then you add the social media uh, issues that you know Kristen mentioned. The video of, of her officers goes viral. Um, those are things that that I think we as leaders need to do a better job understanding how these these incidents can spin out of control in a hurry. I think that the, there's a significant threat that we have to pay attention to, and the exodus of officers, however many years on, uh, is the threat that experience is really important for police officers to be able to police properly. You don't hire a new officer off the street and and send them to the academy even after a field training. Um, there is a lot that goes into uh, the investment and the training and the relationships that make officers highly effective as we measure that. The other big threat that we continue to hear uh, in the media is this uh, reduction of standards, of hiring standards. Uh, we talked about this in, on the heels uh, you know, of Ferguson. Like we need to lower standards so that uh, police officers can be more representative of the communities. That's a very odd conversation for me. Because if we truly want policing to become better, we need to raise the standard. We need better police officers, better decision makers. We need to screen for their ability to make critical decisions in, in difficult situations and then encourage that and train that. Anything that we do to lower a standard is going to create bigger problems for the community, bigger problems for agencies. Um, so I, I think we need to be really careful about what we as leaders in the law enforcement profession, what we as leaders really in, in America uh, allow the conversation to turn into because the downside for uh, society is huge. And I, I think we need to pay attention to those conversations. Well, and just one added comment on that topic, and it's interesting that what you mentioned is true, that the conversation on what should our minimum standards be, should we raise them, should we lower them? And over four decades, I've seen that bounce back and forth, I don't know how many times. Um, it was two or three years ago that some members of Congress were saying, um, you have to, uh, these police departments that require a college degree, that's not fair um, because you're eliminating people who went from high school directly to the military. You're eliminating good people who only have a high school degree or a GED. And so departments lowered them. And now, last week, members of Congress said, you need to raise your standards and hire cops that are more educated. Well, you know what? Just let me know what the rules are, and we'll play by them. But stop changing your mind. If I can just add one thing on, on the standards, and in particular when it comes to, to higher education, this is a, a passion topic for me. Uh, those that know my background know that uh, I'm a high school dropout. Um, I got hired at the Buffalo Grove Police Department with the GED. Uh, and while we can talk a lot about the circumstances that led me to, to drop out of high school, which is a different podcast in and of itself, the reality is I think I was an okay cop, and I think I made a difference in my community even before I had a degree. 
obviously during my career, I went back to school and got an associate's degree, a bachelor's degree, uh, and a master's degree. And as I rose in levels of leadership at the police department, retiring as deputy chief, those opportunities and those experiences I had as, as a, a young person coming into the profession that didn't have that higher level of education, I think actually gave me some opportunities to, to handle policing differently. And certainly I think you can make a strong argument for um, higher education up in, in especially higher rank positions. Um, but I think again, this overgeneralization that the answer is having to have a bachelor's degree. Um, if you look at areas, especially rural areas, smaller police departments, which make up the vast majority of law enforcement agencies in the United States, they're lucky to get quality candidates uh, at all, let alone saying that they must have a, a college degree. Um, so again, it's a really, really challenging conversation that we need to allow for each community, each police department, each uh, municipality or state government, whoever's hiring them. Those need to be independent decisions based on uh, the community itself. Can you um, just briefly tell me a little bit about what community policing policies look like in your departments? Well, as I kind of briefly mentioned earlier, community policing is a philosophy. It's not a specialty unit like a traffic investigations unit or a detective unit uh, or an undercover unit. It's a philosophy, philosophy that needs to um, live in every single member of the police department sworn and non-sworn, including your front desk personnel, your records personnel, anybody uh, on your agency will connect with the public and your residents in one way or another. And, uh, and so community policing has to be a philosophy throughout the agency. And that takes a, a variety of, of different lives, depending on who they're connecting with. Um, that means having the officers spend time not just driving through the community with the windows up but driving through the community with the windows down in the residential areas and stopping when they see kids playing basketball and stopping and talking to them and uh, meeting with your faith-based community and uh and going to different uh block parties and homeowners association meetings and i could make a list 10 pages long but it's all these different ways of connecting with your community that's non-enforcement. That's how you conduct community policing. You build those relationships that are non-enforcement relationships. Uh, I, I hate it when I hear somebody say, um, I've only met a Buffalo Grove police officer one time, and that's when I got stopped for speeding. Um, that's unfortunate because there are so many other ways to meet our officers. You're gonna find them on the roof of Dunkin' Donuts collecting money for Special Olympics. Uh, you're gonna see them at the commuter station handing out free coffee on Random Act of Kindness Day. You're gonna see our officers out there all the time connecting with the community in ways that are not enforcement related. So the philosophy of community-oriented policing, or I should say the policy, so I have a COP unit, community-oriented policing unit, and it's comprised of 19 police officers. And so as, as, we, as it relates to policy and what their function is, 
their job, they're not tied to 911 calls, so they don't have to respond to emergency calls. Their primary function, and they're assigned to each district in, 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 uh, in our city, and their primary function is to problem solve. Uh, they are to determine in that district what is the uh, what is what is occurring that needs uh, to be addressed by our police department, and then they can either handle that or you know they ask for other resources. So it may be there may be drug dealing going on in a community. They're problem solving, determining you know who's going to handle that. It may be a quality of life issue. It may be you know loud music. It may be a rash of burglaries, be it vehicle or um, or residential. So no matter what the issue is, they are charged with problem solving and and to determine you know how to fix that problem as as it were. However, and again, 307 police officers, and I mirror uh, Steve's philosophy is that I've told every police officer on my department, you are all community oriented police officers. Every single one of you um, is, uh, is a, a recruitment officer. Uh, you have 307 police officers. That means 307 contacts. Um, that should be a positive outcome. Even if you are enforcing the law, it still should be a positive outcome um, where, where the, the citizen or whomever you are interacting with um, feels as though they were treated with human dignity and respect. And so um, I absolutely agree. It is, it is a philosophy that has to be instilled but I will say it has to come from the top. So you have a lot of uh, police leaders in our industry that tout that they are a community-oriented policing agency, and yet they put a high emphasis on clearing calls, making sure that those 911 calls are answered. That has to start at the top where you say to the police officers, you know what, some of those priority three calls, the report calls, those are priority three where and you know something has already happened, um, a theft that's already occurred, um, and so you you let them sit for a little while and and then in order to allow our police officers who are answering 911 calls to respond to a problem and to solve the problem to spend that time playing basketball to stop and see you know kids instead of you know and just let that report call linger a little bit so it's not enough just to say we are a community or a policing agency you have to walk that talk and i see a lot of agencies that are too you know uh, let's we got to clear those calls we have to answer those calls so it has to be interwoven into um truly into the entire police department as a philosophy yeah, and I love uh, I love your comment about you know getting the, the officers out there and doing something in their community. And I, just from a historical perspective, I think we have to remember that in the seventies, eighties, we we were community police, right? The the Sir Robert Peel's principle that I mentioned uh, earlier, and, and going back to the Clinton administration, uh, the cops grants, the community oriented policing grants, cops more making officer redeployment effective. At some point, we started uh, evaluating, measuring officer effectiveness based on uh, tangible evidence, including things like tickets or arrests. And, and, and that's an oversimplification of what law enforcement does. It takes a very progressive police leader uh, and supervisor to be able to create an evaluation system that truly measures relationship with the community. That is a complicated uh, set of, of priorities that we need to do a much better job with. And if we, again, think about historical perspective, I think the police, which is an overgeneralization of law enforcement in the United States. We're doing a really good job of community-oriented policing, um, but I think 9-11 changed the face of law enforcement dramatically. And I think we you know, get into these conversations about the militarization of police. The reality is that there are events that happen across the country daily that require a more military type of response from police, tactical teams and otherwise, but that's not the day-to-day -day police work 
that we do. So again, I think we need to be cautious about the oversimplification that's sometimes used in social media or the media in general about what it is that we're trying to accomplish. There's a role for each one of those um, entities, those specialties, those subtypes to be involved, including your community-oriented policing teams. Thank you for saying that about, um, you know, numbers, as I think that, you know, when I first became the chief, we had this matrix, it was all about counting things. And, you know, a matrix is basically, you know, a, a, a complex word for, you know, bean counting, you know, you have to have, you know, there are weighted things like so, you know, if you have this many felony arrests, you know, you get X amount of points. And so, and then the officers had to be in this particular point range, right? So, I mean, call that what you want, call it a matrix. But, you know, for me, it was, you know, I, I say their quotas, right? So then officers were too busy spurring around trying to get their points accumulated, you know, to make sure that they were in this, you know, parameter so that their supervisors, you know, were not coming down on them. So I got rid of all of that. And that's what I mean about, you know, it's starting from the top is that you can't have both. You can't, you know, expect officers, you know, to go out there and you have to have X amount of felony arrests and misdemeanors or X amount of tickets because that takes away from problem solving, from relationship building. And then to your point, um, I got chastised the other day for uh, us using the term warriors um, in policing because there is a, you know, there is a big argument of warriors um, um, is, is, you know, it's indicative of war, right? Um, well, you're talking to a person that had a mass shooting in their city one year ago, and in that mass shooting, uh, five people were killed by, a, a, it was workplace violence, it was a, a, an employee getting terminated, and five of my cops were shot because uh, they went in to try to stop the shooter from killing more people, and as each officer went in, they got shot, so I had five officers in total um, that, that were shot, fortunately, uh, we didn't lose any of them, but that's that's the warrior mindset is that you know you have to have a balance of both 99.8% of the time in our communities our officers are guardians but i do believe that there has to be and maybe we apply another word to it right but we also have to have people in the profession that are willing to run towards that gunfire to stop that shooter from shooting more people. My officer saved countless lives that day. And so I kind of reject the notion that they can't be both. And, and I push back on that all the time, but absolutely we should, we should be hiring guardians, but they also have to be people who are willing to run into the middle of that. And, and I will not shy away from that. And I would add, I think we need to be careful about catchphrases and, and we see it on the training side with a lot of people suddenly using terms like de-escalation or implicit bias and the reality is that a lot of people using it or creating training programs don't really know what that means and, and, and Kristen to your point about the warrior conversation and, and I remember some heated deep conversations about the idea of guardian versus warrior and uh, how that played out on social media and I was fascinated earlier this year in the midst of the, the COVID-19 pandemic as it was really ramping up Suddenly warrior, the word warrior was being applied to nurses and doctors and people cleaning restaurants and truck drivers. But yet a few years ago, it wasn't okay to call police officers warriors. And now we've kind of gone back to full circle where I'm seeing a social media outcry of, well, the police aren't warriors. We were two months ago. So again, I think we just need to be careful about those catchphrases and how they're used. So we've heard a lot of talk in the media about um, the idea of defunding the police um, you know, it's kind of a spectrum between disbanding police and then reallocating some funds towards, um, you know, social services and 
schools and low income communities. Um, so what do you think is could be the impact of uh, the re reallocation of funds um, that police departments normally get? Well, this is one of my favorite questions in the next two weeks. Um, and I'll try to summarize some of my con comments that I made to the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee yesterday, seems like a week ago, uh, on this specific topic. And I'll go back to the 70s and the early 80s when our federal government, our state governments, and society completely defunded social services. They defunded mental health. They defunded uh, programs that helped homelessness and drug abuse, et cetera, et cetera. And because those programs were defunded, the only place that was left was law enforcement. And all of those societal problems were dumped in the doorstep of law enforcement, and we were expected now to handle that. So we had to become experts in homelessness. We had to train all our officers in mental health first aid and CIT. Uh, we had to start carrying Narcan for drug overdoses. Um, it's to the point where we're almost carrying a backpack with all of our equipment and manuals now because we have to be an expert in everything that society has defunded. And to illustrate that probably the best is in 1970, the population of this country was less than half of what it is right now. And across the United States, we had over 600,000 beds in various mental health facilities to treat persons affected with mental health issues. Fast forward to 2020, where our population is more than doubled, and we have less than 60,000 beds. So is that a problem? It is a problem when the three largest mental health institutions in our country are Cook County Jail in Chicago, LA County Jail, and Rikers Island Prison. So society has forced law enforcement to criminalize mental health and homelessness. And this is a huge failure in our society, but it seems to be blamed on law enforcement, when really we need to look back at why those social services were defunded in the first place. So am I in favor of funding more social services? Absolutely, but not by taking away money from law enforcement, because law enforcement still has all those issues that we have to deal with. And some of the complaints that you see across the nation right now on law enforcement, we need to have more training in de-escalation. We need to have officers trained more in use of force. We need to have officers trained more and pick the topic. Well, that's not free. So training comes at a cost. Do we want the best trained police or do we want the cheapest police? Somebody needs to make that decision and live with it. When I first uh, heard this, uh... The, the concept or just just the verbiage of defund the police. It was actually right after the riots and we had our, um, uh, I'm sorry, right after the incident, we had our first protests and, um, you know, people were holding signs that said defund the police. And I was astounded because to me, that messaging is terrible because I read it as abolish the police. And I thought, oh my gosh, you're going to get rid of police. Um, that is, that, that is, that's just a terrible idea, you know? And, and I had kind of a snarky, you know, like, good luck with that, you know? And, and then as I started to listen to what the concept was of defund the police, I, I, I started thinking, oh my gosh, we've been asking for this 
for for years to do this. I mean, this all of these issues that substance abuse, homelessness, uh, mental health, uh, we have spent so much money. I have 307 sworn police officers and every single one of them has gone through crisis intervention training to deal with mental health issues. That's not criminal in nature. We have a homeless shelter in our in our city, in our jurisdiction, and a lot of our 911 calls are comprised of homelessness issues. Homelessness is not a crime, but then you add substance abuse on top of that, mental health issues and all of that, and this is falling on the shoulders of law enforcement. And so when I thought, you're asking us to defund the police department right now, we've been way ahead of you. We've been asking for you to do this for years, but again, not in taking away resources from police officers, but having other social services agencies step up and handle these issues, have social workers respond to these. It's not a law enforcement issue. As the riots and protests come to an end, you know, in the future, what actions do you think will need to be taken in police departments in the coming months, um, maybe to improve relationships with the community, things like that? Well, um, I think, and I'll go back to one of my earlier statements, I think the majority of law enforcement agencies in this country are doing an outstanding job in connecting with their community and building great community relations with the police department. I think those agencies right now who did not do that uh, are probably having a rude awakening and realizing uh, what they have not been doing that they should have been doing. So um, I think you're gonna see a certain percentage of law enforcement agencies uh, have to take a whole new look at community policing, police community relations, and uh, reevaluating what they're doing or not doing. I absolutely agree uh, with all of that. And again, in our community, you know, it's really shined the light on the good things that, we're, that we are doing. But it also highlights to me that you know we need to be more vocal about the good things that we are doing. Um, and that was to Steve's point earlier: is like I, I took for granted that people already knew that that we were doing all of these things. And um, and so, but I think going forward, what we need to do is uh, is start now to roll up our sleeves and sit down with our community members and have these conversations. Um, as I mentioned earlier, let's listen to um, some of the you know people describing their interactions with the police. And then um, I've told our officers we are very good, uh, but there is always room for improvement. And, you know, so um, just because we're healthy doesn't mean, you know, we can't get better. And so I think what our next steps um, now, again, being being one of the fortunate agencies that have been very progressive, um, I think what we do now is we move forward with our community and having these conversations and tweaking things and, and getting better, listening to where, where we can improve and how we can be better for our community. I love what you said about listening, Kristen. I mean, I think uh, I'm pretty fortunate to be connected to some, some pretty amazing police leaders, including uh, Steve uh, and Kristen. Um, but I, I don't know of a more progressive leader for the law enforcement profession and for, for community than, than you, Kristen. I've watched what you've done over the last few years and the way that your officers embrace the relationship with the community. And, and I have to say that, so when the riots broke out and your stores got looted, and I watched that all start playing out. I was actually astounded because I know how much you value the relationship with the community. So it was fascinating to me that that as we you know talk about like what's the next thing? You nailed listening on the head. I think we as law enforcement professionals need to do a much better job of listening to our communities, 
and, and then having dialogue. Often we listen just long enough so that we can argue our point, and you see that all over social media. Um, the, the other, I think, really interesting piece is, is, again, goes back to this oversimplification idea. Um, while we're listening to our communities, I think those in leadership positions probably need to do a better job of listening to their other people, uh, their officers. Um, we've, for years, uh, been fighting the divide between line personnel and leadership positions, whether it's real or imaginary or both. Um, and, and boy, that's a really challenging place to be because if you're a leader in the policing profession, you're trying to do a better job relating to your community. The reality is that your officers are the most connected to your community. Steve Cass Stevens or Christmas even may be the face of their organizations, um, but the reality is it's the line personnel that have the day-to-day -day interactions with the community that need to be empowered to make a difference. And it's, it's fascinating to me that we're talking about things that we talked about in the 90s and early 2000s with community-oriented policing and all the grants that were out there. You know, we, we've made huge strides uh, and, and we obviously need to do better, but it all starts with listening. I agree. And I love what you said about having internal conversations as well. Um, uh, I've heard, uh, and then this is something I think we also need to focus on. I have heard from uh, many of my African-American police officers, and you want to talk about right now um, um, people who are in pain. Um, they are having their back turned on uh, the, by the community. People are turning their back on them. And, and the things that are being you know, said about our African-American officers is just, to me, I mean, right now, I think that we need to focus a lot on that and having conversations about, you know, they're, they, you know, they're being called traitors and, you know, and then we're trying to recruit uh, more diversity in our departments. And I've been trying to do this for years. I, I mean, an ideal um, police force and my utopia is to have a police force that have the demographics of the city that we serve. And, and yet we are, we have struggled with that. I have an African-American deputy chief who was born and raised in my city who struggles, you know, to help with recruiting. And he's the perfect voice, you know, to, to bring people on. And he is struggling with it. We have so many officers who are struggling to try to bring people into the profession. But again, now, you know, because race has become such an issue and I, we need to have these conversations within not only internally of our department, but also externally with our community. And I think that's where where change is going to start to happen is with is through dialogue. You know, protests are going to happen and I am all about peaceful protests, but there comes a time when we have to roll up our sleeves and we have to start talking to one another and sharing our stories. And I think that is where we'll begin to have a change is that we're going to begin to have that tipping point is because it's a story. It's a personal story that influences people. That's where you say, wow, I, that's never happened to me. Um, and that is where you begin to have that, that seek first to understand and then be understood uh, in the words of Stephen Covey. And that is where we have to start. And I think that's where real change happens. Thank you to Kristen and Steve for coming on the podcast to share their knowledge with us today. Thanks also to Roy for co-hosting this series with us and offering his insight as well. Next week, we'll continue our discussion with Kristen and Steve as we discuss responder mental health. Be sure to tune in next week as we continue our discussion with Roy and Carolyn about things like the importance of social support and strategies for coping with trauma. If you have any questions or topic suggestions for future episodes, please send us an email at podcast at ncbrt.lsu.edu. Make sure you subscribe to the LSU NCBRT Preparedness Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. So we'll see you again next week.